You went to buy yourself a fender The ukulele down They always seem to use your gender When they're describing how you sound Sometimes you put a pretty show on Sometimes you turn it up a lot When do you sing a little folk song? When do you wanna fucking rock? And I am not a damsel in distress I'm not the wicked witch of the West I am not a holy apristess I'm an enigma Enigma When to heaven in the backseat You never got that angel's Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. I'm joined here in the Tell You What studios by the executive producer, spiritual advisor to the podcast. Susan is here. Team Tell You What. Team Tell You What. In addition addition to performing those important duties, Susan is also a big fan of our guest for this episode, Heather Maloney. She is responsible for bringing Heather's music to my attention. For that, I am grateful. It's been said that I've wanted to adopt some of our previous guests. and In Heather's case, I think I just want to kneel down before her <laughs> and well, learn. All right. Heather has a great new album out uh, called Soil in the Sky. Uh, in the introduction, you heard uh, the song Enigma, uh, which is she does as a duet with Rachel Price. It's really beautiful. Also on the album, she sings a duet with Taylor Goldsmith from Dawes. We talk about that a little bit during the episode. So, Susan, last week here in the studio, we had a show with Heather Maloney. She performed here for a a small group of people. And I want to talk about that for a minute because in the podcast, in our discussion with Heather, we usually do talk about live performance, but we didn't really get a chance to talk about that because she had so so many great insights to give us about her creative process and the album. So let's talk about that performance. It was, how would you describe it? I would say there were a few other people in my camp prostrate before, <laughs> before Heather. <laughs> it was it was captivating, right? Uh, at some point during the show, Heather said she tries to remain present during her performances. I would say that was an understatement for uh, how she presented herself. There was an intensity, right? But in between songs, she was very entertaining with stories that introduced and explained the songs. I, I think the audience, everyone in the audience we was. We cried. There was some crying. There was some crying. There was a lot of laughing. Everyone was entranced from start to finish. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. So you can go online and see some videos, uh, live performance videos of Heather's. In fact, uh, this episode is being recorded around the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, and Heather has um, recorded with another Tell You What favorite band, Darling Side, a great, uh, interesting version of the song Woodstock. You should check that out. Check out some other ideas, you'll, some other videos. You'll get the idea of her performance. But what you really should do is go to her show. And when you do, you'll say, hey, you know what? Mike was right. And I will say, actually, Susan was right. <laughs> as is usually the case. <laughs> <laughs> So, if you like this episode, and I think you will, please check out some of our others. I think you might find your next favorite artist. Um, You can find them on the website, or better yet, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play. We are now on the Spotify, and we're now evidently on something called Stitcher. 
which the kids are all using, I'm told. So check us out on those places and tell a music-loving friend about us. So let's do this. What do you say, Susan? Yeah, bring it on. Let's get to it. Here's our discussion with Heather Maloney. I am not a lady you can tame. I am not a girl that you can shame. I am not a woman you can name. I'm an enigma. Heather, thank you for joining us on Tell You What, the podcast. I hope you are enjoying the new studios here at the top of the Tell You What Towers, the Epiplex. <laughs> Loving it. Can Absolutely. see you all the way across the lake from up here, the 21st, 100th floor. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thanks for coming by and taking the time. We really appreciate it. Um, let's start, if we can, with a little bit of your backstory. I think when you were younger... You had some formal voice training. Do I have that right? Yes. Opera, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I um, I studied classical operatic vocal uh, vocals and um, some classical music theory. Um, definitely far from what I'm doing now. <laughs> Is that where it started or was that just in addition to the more, uh, I don't know, the folk kind of stuff you're doing now? Um, it, it's not exactly where it started for me, um, but I, there was definitely a moment, um, around then that I thought, I'm going to be an opera singer. Oh. And, and chased that for a little while. And, and even though it's very, I'm very far from an opera singer at this point, Um, it's still very much informed how I think about singing, um, how I've been able to sustain my voice for almost 10 years of touring, uh, and not do harmful things with it. Um, and on the other side of that coin, I've, I've really had to unlearn a lot of operatic training too. So, um, what do you mean by that? Uh, Would be an example. I guess. Letting letting go of control, um, allowing myself to kind of use vocal textures that aren't acceptable or or encouraged. Standard. Yeah. So there's sort of there's a lot that I've hung on to and a lot that I've let go of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to jump ahead here in my areas of discussion because we already hit on something so you have a really powerful and expressive voice obviously based in your early training so can you talk about using your voice as an instrument maybe in terms of how maybe it enters into the creative process for you so when you are writing are you thinking about vocalization or the interesting vocal arrangements that you end up with as part of that process Oh, am I thinking about... Yes, some of the time, but admittedly not most of the time. Um, usually the writing process for me is, um, is, is incredibly devoted to the story or the message or the character. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in stringing together the right lyrics to 
to, to paint the picture and, right. and, and then later on, usually I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm going to use my voice to then further that story, but it's very story centric f- for me. Usually. Do you use the guitar when you write to find the melodies or do you hear them in your head maybe as your voice? Um, definitely hear melodies in my head first yes. and then, um, the guitar is secondary. Okay. All right, we may get back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting opera training, uh, thinking you want to be an opera singer. Then what happens? Then I, I really I'm 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 a perfectionist, um, and and in my early twenties, sort of to an unhealthy degree, and really lacked a lot of balance, um, and didn't really take a lot of mental health care. Mm -hmm. And I pushed myself uh, really hard with, with training and studying. And I, um, and between semesters I would get really depressed Mm. and I wouldn't really know what to do with, you know, that empty space when I wasn't just filling it with everything I, I could. Right. And it got to a point uh, uh, like um, two and a half years into that pattern, where I'd push myself to exhaustion, and then um, just be on ten all the time, mm-hmm. and then and then crash. Um, and I went through that um, up to this point where I was like, okay, a change has to happen. This isn't sustainable. And so I found, I discovered meditation. Uh, one summer I went. Up, um, I was in New Jersey, and I went up to a meditation retreat that I found in Central Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, and it was like you know a seven-day silent vipassana meditation retreat. I had no idea really what I was getting into, but yep. that first retreat of mine was just a major turning point in my life. Um, the one, the one week. That retreat. one week, yeah. yeah, it just changed my perspective, you know, to this day. Hmm. When I went back in, into the school year, I um, I just couldn't get it out of my head. I, I just constantly had this little voice in the back of my head going, you've got to chase that. Hmm. Um, that, what you, what you touched on in your experience there in, in the meditation retreat is so true and and important that you've got to go chase that. So I ended up dropping out and um, <laughs> and quitting music entirely. Okay. And moving to a silent meditation retreat center. Um, and I was there. I ended up being there for three years. Wow. And. It it really was the best thing I I could have done mm-hmm. for myself um, at that point in my life, and for maybe a year and a half I was really really focused on the practice, right. um, and and then speaking of hearing you know a melody in your head, um, so I had been studying music, um, I didn't I had never been a songwriter. Um, but always in love with music and always drawn to it and always a singer. 
and so you hadn't played guitar really before this okay no no yeah i I, um i had played piano Mm -hmm. um a little bit i kind of taught myself and took a lesson here and there but so i was like on retreat i was on a another you know maybe like seven day silent retreat and 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 i had you know if you've if any of the listeners have ever done a meditation retreat you know like the first three days or the first day even really can be like almost excruciatingly hard because you're coming to a screeching halt right like where our lives are basically filled with stimuli and so when you take away all of all of that sensory stimuli it's it feels like you're ripping off some kind of band-aid right. and, and sometimes it can be really excruciating it can be really difficult it can be um there can be a breakdown yeah yes yeah it's just the opposite it is the absolute opposite of the way we live mm-hmm. and so and the way we're encouraged to live so i was on this particularly difficult retreat and day three i was in i was in it on day three and my mind won't won't stop just you know my thoughts are just constant and I'm like I'm not peaceful at all and I don't have any centeredness and I can't follow my breath for the life of me and and I'm just unable to get to a place of stillness and I'm trying and then you you have to try not to try and then (laughs) it's just frustrating and on this particular retreat a lot of stuff was coming up for me like like childhood trauma Mm. and um just a lot of deep gnarly things and I was just witnessing a lot of my own thinking and and you know ways that my mind works that I was judgmental of and feeling like oh I'm I'm just a terrible person you know when you like really tune into your thoughts and you're like I really think those things I'm (laughs) awful and so I'm just I'm just feeling awful about myself having a horrible time and my and then i just start to feel sad and my heart just felt like achier than i ever remember it feeling and and i was like i don't want to be with this pain like i i'm done trying to face this pain you know right and i'm sitting in the meditation hall with you know 150 other people who are having these other silent <laughs> probably emergencies right and I hear this melody in my head um, and it came with words and it was um, and the words were if your heart is aching let it ache and and I just and I and it became kind of like this little mantra for me and I followed it and as I followed it it became a song and in a way I was kind of singing myself this lullaby and like saying, okay, just just let yourself be awful, <laughs> let yourself hurt, let yourself be a jerk, let yourself be a bad meditator, let yourself do this, let yourself do that, and and it just um, it was a really defining moment for me as a writer because when the retreat was over and I wrote down it in song form and and sitting there looking at it I just remember thinking this is it like this is what I'm going to do 
I just remember thinking, taking what feels like an insight or something that is going to make me feel connected to what my values are and maybe someone else too Mm -hmm. is the thing that I'm here for. And I just remember that being like that moment that I realized that. It's a pretty good story. You were saved by the music. Truly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that talks about the kind of the philosophical, maybe emotional impact that this time had on you. I'd like to ask about how maybe it affects your process. I know there's a lot of songwriters I've talked to or read about that use uh, practices when they try and write things to kind of occupy their busy minds. They talk about like gardening or walking or um, doing the dishes, right? To kind of slow down the chatter in their mind and then enables them then to access possibly their subconscious, the creative place where the ideas maybe come from. We're talking basically about meditation here. I mean, this is what meditation is attempting to do for us. So do you feel like that practice that you learned there, and I presume you still have some kind of practice, is something you use to get somewhere where you access these ideas? Yes. But, so I, I'm actually a person with ADD. I'm like diagnosed ADD. Mm-hmm. And um, so navigating like my particular <laughs> brain chemistry mm-hmm. is... It's a little. It is. It's a little different. Well, there are a lot of people with ADD, but um, for me, taking a seven-day or a ten-day or a three-day vow of silence and throwing myself completely into meditation without anything else being a part of that commit, you know, committed amount of, like block of time, is the only way I can really do that kind of meditation. It, in the rest of my life, it's actually really hard for me to sit yeah. and be silent. So I, I will tend to do more of those sort of active, you know, like you were saying, if you're making the, um, washing the dishes right. or uh, driving or driving. The, the thing that sort of takes up a little bit of your, and for an ADD brain, um, which actually stimuli can can help calm yes. the whole thing. Um, I really do need like, and so a mantra will be like the, maybe the quietest version of what my like active in yep. my life integrated form of meditation is. So I'm guessing you don't sit down with a blank piece of paper and to write very often. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not the way I go about it. No. For me, my songs are often things that lessons that feel hard one that I don't want to forget and and relive I want to sort of take them out of myself put them in a form of a song and put them on a shelf and look at them as moments and chapters of my life that I don't necessarily have to return to and repeat but can you know remember and share with others in case they are or have gone through the same thing Mm -hmm. I got an email from you and your signature line said writer song singer right as opposed to the more conventional singer songwriter so do you consider yourself a writer first rather than a musician or singer i actually i have to give credit to my friend who's a another songwriter um Mm -hmm. 
Peter Mulvey. Have you ever no. heard his? He's a, he's just wonderful, and definitely check him out. But um, he and I did a tour, uh, and we were talking about how, for both of us, the the centerpiece of the song often does feel like the the story or the the lyric, or, mm-hmm. and how the term singer songwriter just kind of feels to really emphasize and I love singing too. So I'm right. not clearly I that's, that's where I started. Yes. Um, but it just kind of by way of the way that the term is set up, it emphasizes the singing part. Mm-hmm. And so Peter said, well, you know, you, you could call yourself a writer song singer. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've shamelessly stolen it from him since then because it just, it does it it I think people assume that you're a singer first or a lot of people assume that I'm a singer first mm-hmm. and I'm like no 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 like listen to the like dig in on a lyrical level and yes. and but you you singing is so accessible right like it's the first it's kind of like the outer layer of the onion it's like the first thing you really notice and come in contact with and it grabs your attention especially if the singer is doing interesting things it's like the first thing you really grok when you're listening to someone and Mm. then you're like oh wait what did they just say right and and so that takes patience and it's it's a little subtler of a thing to be just as moved by but it's 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 really important to me so clearly well i noticed so you probably should keep using it because it works awesome (laughs) (laughs) um Let's talk about your new album, Soil in the Sky, right? Yes. This was a crowdfunded project. Yes. Right? And had an interesting twist. And I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but you can explain it. You had, I believe, audience members at your shows vote for the songs that were to be included on the record. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So how exactly did that work? So... It's a fascinating idea, by the way. I I really really loved it. It yeah. was like one of the most fun touring experiences <laughs> I've ever had. Um, basically, there was a a moment a few years back where I had I had just kind of had a writing spurt for for a time, and and my my back catalog of unrecorded songs um, like built up to a place where I had way more than I needed for just a single record and I just thought okay I've got like 40 songs that I would that I think I would put on a record right now and that's never really happened to me I was like what am I gonna do triple record yeah well it's just it's hard to it's hard to whittle them down it's really hard you know they feel like you're babies and then they end up on a chopping block and right so I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to whittle these down? Um, usually it's a process between like you and the producer and a couple other musicians, maybe your record label, maybe your manager. But it's a handful of people who are like giving you their opinions and feedback. Right. It's like maybe eight people at the most. And it's kind of this insular process where you're like making really big decisions about what's going to be, what's this, what the record's going to be. And um, so... I was thinking about how kind of private and insular that like that process felt and how it kind of seemed like 
an opportunity to invite my fans and the people who have been following me in, um, you know, with this much material. So, so that was my first thought was, Mm -hmm. okay, if, if there's a way for me to show all of this material to the people who like my music and for them to then also be a part of that process of whittling them down, um, that would be really cool. Right. And, and then I had this other thought that kind of something I've been dragging my feet around is like the, you know, full dive into the streaming age and, um, and how physical music is really, you know, it's just been dying and dying and there's a little like revival for vinyl, but that's always going to be niche. Right. And, um, so I was, and I was thinking about how the way that I fell in love with like records and listening to people's albums was, well, I grew up like when I was in the nineties, I would go to the mall and pick up a CD and, and I wouldn't know any of the songs on it. And I would put it in the CD player and I'd take out the lyric book and the art book and I would, you know, lock my door and be in my room for 45 minutes to an hour just taking in an entire new record start to back finish, yeah. and reading along to the lyrics and taking in the art. And it was like this immersive, yes. you know, hour of my life that, that made me fall in love with records. And, um, and that ritual, I realized like so many people will never have that. Um, basically after I'm like an older millennial, I guess like, like younger millennials and on, won't have that unless they really seek that out. Right. And um, and so I was thinking about how I wanted to pay homage to the album insert <laughs> <laughs> in some kind of way. And then with those two thoughts that I had, I, I one day just thought, oh my gosh, I've got to do a tour where I do entirely new music, um, like, you would when you pick up a new record right and i'll project behind me the lyrics and some art so that it's sort of this live homage to buying a new record and taking it in and so that's great i called it projector and (laughs) um and every night i would play an entire set of new music my fans knew that going in that they weren't going to hear the oldie but goodies Mm -hmm. And at the end of the night, every night, I did this for almost two years across the country. I There were little, I called them ballad slips, at, <laughs> on everyone's seat. And they would pick their top three songs that made the biggest impression on them or they resonated with the most in that during the night. And they would vote for the ones that they liked the most. And what I found that was that, um, well, first of all, having the lyrics behind you when you play a new song is it it's really powerful because when you play a new song people are taking in so much that they don't often really hear what this what the message is in the song so this kind of fast forwards them a little bit by seeing the words exactly they felt like a more immediate familiarity with the music and 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 which was at first was terrifying to me that i was about to play like sets of new music to everyone because um you know that can be really hard for a listener right and but I, I just found that something as simple as projecting the lyrics was like it was so powerful in in creating that immediate connectivity to the material. 
And at the end of the night, people voted. And like I said, I, I did this solo and I did this duo with my longtime collaborator, Ryan Hummel. And after project work kind of came to an end, um, we had collected and counted thousands of votes from everywhere and tallied them. And the, the seven out of the 10 songs that are on the new record are songs that were the top, you know, polling songs of, of that tour. Were you surprised at which ones the fans, were there any that kind of surprised you or any that were left off that surprised you? Oh yeah. I was constantly surprised. Um, which is why letting, letting the fans in on the process of deciding what gets recorded. A lot of artists were like, why would you do that? Well, yeah, that's the other question I had is giving up that control is a scary thing for an artist, I would think. Right, it is. And um, I, it's, it's kind of like that thing where people say like, well, cliches are cliches for a reason. You know, everyone says them for a reason. Well, people's response to the music, the patterns of, of how responsive people were to things they're they're there for a reason like i i like the the kind of wisdom of the masses you know everyone particularly since these are your fans to begin with yeah exactly and 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 i also that being said i left myself i said seven out of the ten of the songs i left myself you know a good um quarter of the record or you know a, a slice where i wasn't going to have any input from anyone um, you chose a few that songs. I chose exactly. Yeah. So so I left myself that space as well on this record. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found, and I'm not kidding when I say this, I I agreed with the patterns and and the and the the choices that the audience. So you're saying your selections would have been close to what they picked. I don't know if entirely. Yes, but. Because the other piece is that. Well, do you did you come away with that after having done the tour, right, and performing these songs? Not yes. You would not have necessarily said that going in, right? Because your perspective yes. changes, right? Because like when you write a new song, it's like all you want to play, and you're just you're just you're just in th- you're so enthusiastic about it. Best and, thing I've ever done. Yeah, right. It's just like it's <laughs> and and but you don't have a lot of perspective because it came out of you, and you know you've got to. You got to kill your darlings, you know, and um, and so you haven't killed your darlings yet. Usually, when a song first comes out, because you're just you just love it, and <laughs> and so I knew that too. This was an entire set of new music, and so I knew that I didn't have a lot of perspective, but I did come around. And your relationship to songs changes as they age from like the first day you write them to the third month you've been playing them to the following year like your perspective changes yes. and you change as, as you realize that the maybe writer. it's a different song than you thought it was yeah exactly or you've you've grown like mm-hmm. a little bit and you're like who was that what was she saying <laughs> you know so um so it's i giving myself the space to have a different relationship to each song mm-hmm. and let that be uh, like sometimes even informed by what other people's relationships to the songs were was really fascinating and and like enriching right um and what i found was that and i know other songwriter friends of mine feel the same way um songs that you think people are going to respond to because they seem to have something you know catchy or like 
you think that they have some mass appeal. Maybe they really do. They're like songs that you would pitch to like, the you hit. know, right. It's, yes. But I found that people were voting oftentimes for like ballads that mm. I just, you know, really sad ballads or, you know, just like things that I just never would have dreamed people were going to be like enthused about. You know? So you gained a greater respect for your audience maybe also. Yeah, that's, a, that's, yeah, 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 that's, a, that's a good, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that it's a, it's a great story and a great idea. Um, I'm not sure many artists would have the guts to, 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 to do it. Well, I didn't put, put your least favorite songs down. <laughs> I wouldn't have the guts <laughs> to do that. That's true. Don't number yeah. them from 1 no. to 40 or no. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about a couple of songs from the record. Um, we'll get heavy right out of the gate. We'll talk about the song All In Your Name, right? Mm. So when I listen to the song, I mean, the lyrics are pretty clearly about um, losing someone in someone's life, right? They're gone. But I kind of hear this as an optimistic song in that the message is kind of that the people we lose are never really gone because they are part of us and mm. part of our world. Mm. Am I in? That's at least what I took from this song. I, I appreciate the way that you listen to it. Um, yeah, it's... Um, I've described that song in that same exact way. Okay. Um, and it's, I, I just appreciate that you're, that you see like the light and the dark in it because, um, it, it is dimensional to me in that way. It's not just, and I've got plenty of songs <laughs> that are just the, just the, the gnarly dark, dark <laughs> you know, we're in it and there's no light coming in, but this song, um, it's definitely one that came from some pretty deep pain and some pretty direct contact with loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also is, it's comfort. Okay. There's, it's finding that weird comfort in the middle of the darkness of loss. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, you just described it. Ain't those your keys, they're on the table And they've gone everywhere you go They opened every door you walked through Turned every engine on you I'd run those keys out to the driveway Joke that you wouldn't have gone far And now you're further about we were together I noticed that 
Well, first of all, this seems to be a love song, which you don't write a lot of. Am I right about that? So that's interesting. Um, it is a um, features Taylor Goldsmith with singing with you. When you wrote the song, were you hearing two voices? Was this a duet or did that kind of have to be thought about later? Initially, I did not write the song as a duet. Um, and when I was in pre-production with my producer and collaborator, Ryan, um, I had the inspiration of wanting to have my first duet on a record. Okay. At first, I was thinking, well, I'm going to go into a little writing hole and, and see what comes out. Uh, and then I, I kind of was getting ready to give myself some writing space to, to see just what kind of duet was in me. Um, when I thought about this song that I had written about kind of the first night out on the town I, I spent with my sweetheart. Um, and it was this song based on a Walt Whitman poem. Um, uh, the poem Once I Passed Through a Populous City mm -hmm. and there's a line in the poem that's uh, we were together all else has long been forgotten by me and I just it's like the most incredibly romantic line <laughs> and he's like talking about traveling and and how he goes to this you know rich with sounds and sights and new tastes and and experiences this this new foreign city and he goes to kind of be imprinted by all of those things and and he gets home from the whole trip and you know the only thing he remembers really is being with this person that he falls in love with while he's there so the poem is often misquoted as uh we were together i forgot the rest um which is much less wordy right. <laughs> than the original, than the actual quote from the poem. And so when I was thinking about this, this night out that we, that we spent together the, the first time, um, I was really kind of failing to come up with the details <laughs> because really all I could remember was being with him. And then I, I was like, oh my gosh, I had a Walt Whitman experience. <laughs> and so I wrote the song, you know, based on that night and, and that poem. And, and then I kind of shelved it, um, didn't really revisit the song until that moment where I was kind of reaching for a duet and... I was like, wait a minute, this song, this song, this this was meant to be a duet. So I took it to Ryan and we kind of pulled the song apart and and restructured it as a duet uh, and okay. and really expanded the bridge. The bridge was like really short before. And then um, we demoed it with Ryan singing Taylor's part. Right. And oh, I say Taylor's part, but we hadn't even asked Taylor to sing it yet. Um, but we, we demoed it with Ryan singing that part and we, um, just sent it to Taylor not long after that and asked him to do it. And he said yes. And, um, which was pretty magical because I, are you a associate of his or just a fan? Well, um, kind of both because we yeah. have a lot of, um, people and friends in common okay. I just I'd never met him and mm -hmm. and actually at that point we had already um 
we had already put together the band for the record, which included Griff, his brother, um, who's the drummer in Dawes. Right. Um, so it was kind of like a natural unfolding in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but I had never met him and, um, really the, the only experience I had with Taylor up to that point was like singing along with him in my car, you know, <laughs> at the top of my lungs for the past many years. And, um, and I've sung with his voice so much that, um, I, it was almost like I already knew how to sing with him. You knew it would work. Yeah. Like, yeah, and, and, and so when we wrote, we were writing it as a duet, we were writing it with him in mind, right. not knowing whether he was going to have time to do it or, mm-hmm. or want to do it or whatever. So it was, it was kind of magical in that way. But, um, yeah, his voice is... Well, it, it came out wonderfully, I have to say. Oh, thank you. What was the song you were singing along to on the radio? I don't know how it went, but I know that I can Still feel how you swayed me to the beat I just don't really remember What we said, but I know it was tender I just can't really recall Very much, but I still feel it all I still feel it all Dust Bowl story, right? The the album title "Soil in the Sky" is in fact a, from this song, a vivid description of the Dust Bowl itself. Yeah. Right? So, how did you come to this story? I um, watched Ken Burns's documentary on the Dust Bowl. Okay. And the way that he told the story, I mean, he's just he's one of my favorite storytellers, and he's not. Well, he's telling stories. He's telling real stories. Yes. Um, but he tells them in a way that is both factual and really emotional and and really just grabs you, you know, in your head and in your heart. And um, so I was watching this, the story of the Dust Bowl. And one thing that I learned while watching his documentary on it was that it was the biggest man-made natural disaster um in our history right and just the fact that we didn't know that we were the cause right because we were farming places where we should not have been farming just really like uninformed agricultural Mm -hmm. um habits and basically over farming and farming way too much of the surface and eventually like created all of this, you know, erosion and, and it was just a mess. Right. And I mean, I'm not going to do it any justice or tell it like he did, but, um, we created this incredible mess and the part of the way that he told the story that really, really got me was when he was describing the people living there while the dust storms were happening 
um, people were losing everything and um, getting sick and and just living in the living in dirt. You right. know, um, the 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 part that really got me was that he described how they felt that that disaster around them was like an existential crisis. It was because God was upset with them mm. or because they were down on their luck or um, like there was this sort of outer cosmic reason for the disaster that was just completely wrecking their lives. And it just struck me that there, that actually it was like very, very specific direct reasons like made by people. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so the chorus of my song says like, I don't know how we came to deserve this. Right. And that's the feeling that I was getting watching this documentary. And, and it gave me this really eerie sense that we as humans have done this in throughout history mm-hmm. over and over again. And, and it gave me this really eerie feeling like, Oh, right now we're doing that. We're doing it again. Yes. And, and we're going to say as things get worse that we don't know how we came to deserve it. And it just, man, it just made me, I have to write this song. Yeah. I have to write this song. Then it rose above us, the blackest of dust. In the middle of the day, I was harvesting the hay from noon to midnight. In ten minutes time, we ran to shelter eyes. contrast that song with 100 pennies um, I get the impression this is a personal story right and the imagery of 100 pennies in a Ziploc bag by the way is very strong I have to say that but we're, now we're talking about two different kinds of writing here right Oklahoma story you're kind of telling someone else's story mm-hmm. right a character if you will mm-hmm. versus I'm assuming this song or maybe in other, other songs of yours kind of telling personal truth or using personal truth to, to write the song. Can you talk about the different ways of, of producing those songs? Yeah, it's that's a really great question. Well, this is what I do. Great question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, I, I just really appreciate the, the, the way you um, dismantle and, and understand songs. Um, yeah, so I love writing about other people's experiences just as much as I love writing about my own and inevitably I'm going to just because I'm writing from this being <laughs> I'm I'm going to end up in in things and I and I always try to to really take on other people's perspectives when I write like the the character in Oklahoma Lullaby is a farmer and and he's the he's uh, 
well, he's, he wants to be a farmer. He's leaving. He takes his family um, to kind of cash in on the, the big wheat boom that was happening. Right. And I write it from his perspective, but I, I won't even go into the ways that I end up in there, but I do. And, and also, in a way, I'm writing kind of for us as a, as a, as a rate, like as, as the human race. Okay. Um, in that song. So it kind of feels like we're this family and we're kind of like screwing things up right now in some pretty crazy ways. And, and if I tell this story about us, like maybe that will shift some thinking, you so know, says the character is the vehicle yeah, for the story. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then a song like a hundred pennies, that is very much just about me healing something that I went through personally. Mm-hmm. The character is me. I'm not trying to um, get across a bigger message about a bigger thing, including all of us. It's it's so it's pretty singular in that way. They saw me sit alone, broken. That's what they call my home. So they sent. Me away with my milk and my tray. The cafeteria is no place for teary eyes, and I ate lunch with a lady in an office down the hall. Showed her one hundred pennies in a Ziploc bag. Oh, one hundred pennies, and I won't feel bad. Finish up with one question. Uh, how do you think you have changed when you think you're still a young person and a young artist, however you've been at this for a while? How do you think you've changed as a, as a songwriter over that time? You know, are there things you've gotten better at? Has your process changed that you, when you look back, you can see how things have really are different than they were when you're just trying to figure this out? Hmm. I think. A major shift for me from if I'm comparing myself now to when I first started is how um, I've become a lot more intentional about why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. I was pretty intentional in the beginning, but I think very susceptible to a lot of the misconceptions that people have about this industry, which have to do with success like i think we're taught that you are either rich famous a star and you know on all of the radio stations and playlists and everyone knows who you are or you're completely struggling you're a starving artist you're 
you're striving to make it, you're not happy with where you are. Right. And there really is no in between. And um, I think I really took on that narrative just because I had it in myself, but also it was encouraged. It's still encouraged. When I am on the road every day, people say, oh, you're going to make it. <laughs> Keep going. You know, good for you. And, you know, it's like, I don't think that people realize that there is a middle class of musicians and and when you get a firm footing there, you have made it right. and you're doing it and it's enough and it's okay and it's and and you're living an incredibly rich life and you're paying your bills and um yes, you're not you're not Beyonce, but you're but you're not um uh something to be pitied, right. you know, you're and and so um I've had to do a lot of work and I constantly have to do a lot of work because it's always coming it's always being fed to me you know uh those lines Yes People and are, there's an industry apparatus that feeds it as well Exactly right. exactly so it's it's now I've really honed in that intention to be to take as much joy as possible with exactly where I am and to be um, happy and proud mm-hmm. and um, and enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a big shift from the beginning. It's exhausting to be chasing something like that, you know. Well, that's a very good answer. You're in, sounds like you're in a good place. I'm doing my best. <laughs> All right, Heather, thanks so much for taking time. This was a great, great talk. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the incredibly quality questions. Okay, folks. We did it last time, and it was great. So Heather has graciously agreed to try performing a song live here in our studio. So let's see if we can do that, Heather. Amazing. What do you you have for us? Well, I was thinking I might do something from the new record. Yes. This is called What I Don't Know 2. Always a little new and honey there. 